Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. So we're doing something special this week, back-to-back crossover episodes of Worldly in the Weeds. Jen's going to be on the weeds tomorrow, and today we welcome our friend Darylind, or Darylind, whose name is the only one mispronounced and confused as much as mine. So welcome. Thank you, Yoshi. I'm glad that she's on, Yoshi. Yeah. (laughs) Same. So we're going to be talking about President Trump's new national security team and the big and very scary question of whether the odds of war with North Korea and war with Iran are now going up. So let's start with John Bolton. This is Trump's new national security advisor who's known for nuanced and measured thinking about things like the Iran nuclear deal. I think the deal is inherently flawed. I think it's a strategic debacle for the United States. You can always tinker around the edges, and the question is whether putting lipstick on a pig is really going to make a difference here. I I think the answer to that is clearly no. That's kind of a, tell us what you really think, John. So he used to work at Fox News where he could cheerfully hot take away without much problem. Now he's going to be setting policy. He and his glorious mustache heading into the West Wing. So, Zach, big picture. John Bolton, mustache, Fox News. What else should a person know about new national security advisor John Bolton? He really likes to propose war as a solution to things. Uh, He has many different times suggested that military force is the right approach to insert X rogue state here. His backstories, he's been in Republican politics for decades at this point, and he served at two major posts in the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration. The first one uh, was in the State Department, where he focused on weapons of mass destruction policy. This was obviously a big deal in the run-up to the Iraq War, and Bolton was very credibly accused of being part of the distortion effort when it came to intelligence on weapons of mass destruction. Like, really very serious allegations. The second was an ambassador to the UN, which he could not actually get his Senate confirmation for, uh, because he had such a long history, not only of this intelligence tampering, but of being abusive towards subordinates. There were multiple different accounts that came up during his confirmation hearings. So Bush appointed him during a, essentially during a recess, using recess appointment powers. And it was a mess. Bolton didn't get much done and antagonized a lot of different people at the UN. So this is a guy who is known for pushing his agenda, uh, and doing so relatively effectively, by the way, I don't mean to imply that he's a dumb guy. He's he's a reputation for being a very, very smart and calculating bureaucratic infighter, just one who uses his talents towards war, mostly. Yeah, war, I would say. Derry, he got here the way that seemingly everyone now in the White House gets there, by auditioning on Fox News. Yeah, so— Before Bolton kind of got the formal appointment last week, he was serving as something of an unofficial advisor. He would be spotted at the White House pretty frequently. Trump talked about him a lot. Uh, But it was also kind of an open secret that because Donald Trump watches a great deal of Fox News, people who are on Fox News a lot have Donald Trump's ear. And so because Bolton was a frequent talking head, it was so kind of assumed that that gave him pull with the White House, that according to a report yesterday, Jared Kushner would actually call up Bolton before doing Fox News hits so that Bolton would have the administration's line so that he would sound more informed when he went on Fox News to talk to the president. Oh, my God. Uh, I didn't know that. That's amazing. It's it's, it's the best illustration we have of what's become this extremely tight closed loop where— It's pretty apparent right now that even if you're in the Trump administration, the best way to get Trump's ear is to go outside the Trump administration. Like, we know the man doesn't like to read memos. We know he doesn't like particularly long presentations. That's a lot of why he didn't like H.R. McMaster. So 
you know, ironically, Bolton, by actually being in the White House, it's not necessarily that he has more influence with the president. It's that he now has kind of the power institutionally to pursue the agenda that he's already persuaded the president is a good idea. And so H.R. McMaster, obviously the now former national security advisor, we had done a, a pre-written story that we had ready to go that was going to use the headline Mick Ouster. And sadly, we didn't get a chance to use it. It's a, it's a shame. But with McMaster gone, Bolton in. So you have McMaster, who was a three-star general in the army. He was known for being an intellectual. He was not terribly effective in the job because, you know, Dare, as you were saying, Trump didn't like him. Now you've got Bolton, who comes into the White House. This isn't like a random moment to make a cabinet reshuffle, right? Like here we are heading into April. Come May 12th, the Trump administration decides whether to pull out of the Iran deal, not just decertify it, but actually literally pull out of it and tear it up, which we'll talk about in a second. And President Trump's about to be sitting down, at least in theory, with Kim Jong-un. So you'll have, for the first time in history, an American president and a North Korean leader talking about nukes and whether to get rid of them, what to do with them. And I feel like that's kind of the sort of context we need to talk about this, right? It's not just a reshuffling of bureaucrats. It's a elevation of a really, really well-known, really prominent, really hawkish person. You know, Zach, to your point, who knows how to work the bureaucracy? And I feel like the kind of meta-narrative of the Trump White House is you have people who are in jobs that they're woefully unqualified for, Ben Carson, and you have people who are in jobs that they are kind of qualified for, but really ideological, like John Bolton. And I feel like the ideology is what's, in some cases, most striking about him. It is. You know, there's a there's a speech of Bolton's that just came out. He gave it recently to a university in Washington. And I, I encourage you to watch it because he outlines his overall approach to the world in it. And it's really stunning because he talks about how he still believes in a lot of the stuff he said in the Bush administration prior to the Iraq war. He still believes the invasion was a good idea. He still believes that Iran and North Korea are part of an axis of evil and outlines his arguments for these things, right? This isn't somebody who has learned from the experience of the past, right, and learned that maybe preemptive or preventative war comes with costs and you need to think about the day afterwards and so on. This is someone who still believes that the unilateral exercise of force by the United States has the potential to radically change the world for the better, despite all the evidence we have to the contrary after the Iraq invasion. You know, this is, of course, fascinating because Donald Trump himself ran for president by distinguishing himself from other Republicans because he had opposed the Iraq war. You know, he claimed from the beginning, but definitely very early on. And, you know, the kind of embrace of Bolton isn't it's not that it's a betrayal of deeply held values. That's exactly the point. Donald Trump's feelings on foreign policy have always been even more instinctual and less less necessarily informed or mapped onto actual policy positions than the rest of his views. But it's also an illustration of how Trump has kind of embraced the culture warrior-ness of being pro-military, qua pro-military. What's going to be interesting here is that the current power holders in the Trump inner circle are, to a certain extent, John Kelly, who's chief of staff, and Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, both of whom are generals. And like the idea of the generals has been kind of this trope that they kind of have each other's backs and agenda-wise. But on the Iran deal, they've actually been among the people kind of pushing Trump to show some restraint. And while H.R. McMaster was on their side, Bolton is not. So it's going to be very interesting to kind of see how that power dynamic plays out, where the people who have actually been doing the American military trying to be a force for good in the world thing have been saying, actually, it's extremely important that we not just pull the heck out of this deal. So I remember back in the day, I was covering Bolton, and I remember interviewing him when I was still at the Wall Street Journal. He is a very, very smart person. He's also very combative in interviews in a way where 
if you are not prepared and you ask him a question that is not well thought out, he'll tear you apart, he'll dissect it. I mean, so, Zach, to your point from before, this is not a dumb man. This is a very smart man. The reason I mention that is in the Bush era, you had a president who, like Trump, didn't know much about the outside world, like Trump, hadn't really traveled very far, like Trump, had kind of lived in a bubble and was molded by advisors who had really strong worldviews. Like Bush himself came into office, he was kind of clay. He was like tabula rasa, and people were sort of molding, molding, molding. Trump comes into office, he has some views that have been kind of consistent. Trade wars are good. Being tough is good. Putin is good. But a lot that, again, is kind of moldable. A national security advisor is not meant to be the person who molds. They're meant to be the person who gets the advice of other people in government, makes recommendations, and says, Mr. President, here are your choices, blah, blah, blah. That's not John Bolton. This is not a kind of referee. This is not somebody who comes in without a worldview. This is somebody who comes in with a worldview, and that worldview is the Iran deal is a catastrophic mistake. You need to get out of it. We know Donald Trump wants to get out of it. We know that Rex Tillerson, Mr. Charisma, said don't. Jim Mattis said don't. Mike Pompeo, coming in as Secretary of State, believed the Iran deal is a mistake and in flaw. And now you have the new National Security Advisor saying the Iran deal is a mistake. And so you just get it. It feels like we're at a point now where the Iran deal isn't dead, but you've got two people with knives kind of like waving their knives above Trump's shoulder and trying to hand him the knives to use himself. And it, it feels just jarring to me because of it. Well, if anything, you're underplaying the situation. Right? Pompeo, really? Even with like the image of knives? Yeah, even with the image Oof. of knives, right? Like Pompeo- You brought a knife to a gunfight, Yohi. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> well played, Dara. Well played. Or a nuclear missile fight, depending on the war. But Pompeo in Congress, that's, that's where he was before he was CIA director, his current job, he- really pushed hard on the Iran deal. He sponsored a bill. This was his major priority, trying to torpedo the deal when the Obama administration was negotiating it, right? Like, this isn't somebody who passively thinks the Iran deal is is sort of kind of a bad thing. This is someone who deeply and fundamentally believes that the nuclear agreement is a mistake and harmful to the United States and has worked in the past to try to undo it. And now he's the secretary of state. And that's arguably the most important position when it comes to an international agreement. You know, Bolton, when it comes to the Iran deal, it's interesting as well because he had been tasked by Steve Bannon with coming up for a plan to get out of the Iran deal and literally wrote a five-page paper about – it was an action plan for the White House about how to get out of it. He wasn't allowed to give it to Trump, so he then published it in National Review. But we – so we don't have to imagine what he thinks about the Iran deal nor how we want to get out of it because he's written what he thinks about the Iran deal and how he wants to get out of it. And I was reading it this morning, and there were a few things in it that were really striking. One is the tone, and I just want to read two little bits of it. So this is him in the actual paper that would have gone to the president. This is Bolton. Here it is. It's only five pages long, but like instant coffee, it can be readily expanded to a comprehensive 100-page playbook if the administration were to decide to leave the Iran agreement. Because if anything about this White House, we know they're, they're into details, and they're into thick briefing books. But in it, it's worth engaging with his argument. So his argument is— the Iran deal by limiting but not ending the Iran nuclear program, that because the Iran deal said they're banned for 10 years or 15 years, but that those, at some point, those lift, that the pathway to bomb remains. And he also believes that because Iran supports terrorism, which they do, and they funnel weapons to American enemies, which they also do, therefore the U.S. shouldn't have dealings with them. So those are worth talking about. Those are substantive critiques. But the other last point I want to flag from it is this. This, again, is Bolton talking about what we should do, we, the White House, should do if it pulls out of the, the deal. And he writes, with Israel and select others, we will discuss military options, which is really jarring because he doesn't say, with the Europeans, we'll talk about diplomacy. With Britain, we'll talk about trade. It's, we'll talk about military force. Strip away the substantive argument he makes, where it gets at the end of the day is back exactly where you were, which is military force is good. Military force can work. Let's get ready to bomb. This is also a choice of 
allies, right? I mean, you're... European governments are pretty vocal about being—they're they're very obviously nervous that the U.S. is going to do something to pull out of the Iran deal. They're very concerned that this is going to be a problem for the legitimacy of agreements like this going forward, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, for all of the conservative critiques of Obama that he, quote-unquote, ignored our allies to reach out to our enemies— this is not the first time that the Trump administration has conducted or contemplated a move that is, you know, frustrating to, like, some of the most basic allies that the U.S. has, right? This comes on the heels of a big tariff announcement that would have been really bad for Canada and a bunch of other close U.S. allies until it had to get walked back. It comes as the U.S. is, you know, making noise again about pulling out of NAFTA. There are bedrock alliances that the Trump administration has decided it is not particularly interested in continuing to sustain. And, you know, those are boring alliances. They're not like sexy alliances like Israel or Saudi Arabia that imply that you have a dog in regional fights that are going to give you military options. Visa. Like, when I not think Saudi Arabia, I think sexy. <laughs> They're, they're not alliances that imply enemies, in other words. They're just basic, boring alliances that you have developed in a post-Cold War world so that the world can kind of speak with a somewhat unified voice when it comes to rogue regimes. And the Trump administration does not appear super interested in keeping that framework alive. What I find really striking, not only about the, the disregard of allies, though that's really important to this, but, but the overall Bolton stance on Iran, uh, is that he's— in his defense, quite honest, a lot of the people who oppose the deal say, no, no, we don't support war, but we think this deal is bad too. You know, there's a third way where we scrap the deal and come up with a new one. And that's a fantasy for reasons that Dara was just discussing, right? Like the Iran deal was painstakingly negotiated over the course of years with the United States and Iran and the broader international community, most importantly, in this case, European allies, whose sanctions were vital in putting pressure on Iran to get them to negotiate to limits, to agree to limits on their nuclear program. They believe the deal is still working. The International Atomic Energy Agency also believes the deal is still working and would be furious if the Trump administration withdrew. Therefore, you have basically two choices if you torpedo the Iran deal now. One is you allow Iran to restart its nuclear program and move towards a bomb and, and get closer to being what North Korea is like. Or two, you go to war to stop them. And Bolton is much more open about that being the alternative than a lot of people who share his policy preferences. And it, it, at least that's honest. I mean, I think three is like there is the possibility, although it's slim, there are talks happening now between the U.S. and Europe. There are talks about trying to find some kind of other thing you could put onto Iran, some other deal, some other some other sanction that'd be enough to keep the U.S. in the deal. So I don't think it's necessarily quite that black and white, although I think it's close. Bolton, though, his view of diplomacy isn't just that it doesn't always work. He has real contempt for it, like kind of visceral contempt. There's a story that wrote about how he used to refer to Christopher Hill, who was for a time the lead American negotiator with North Korea as Kim Jong-il, which is kind of funny on one level, but also gives you a sense of what he thinks of American diplomats on another. But there, there was one other thing that had jumped out to me when I was reading his Iran paper that gives you a sense of what he thinks about diplomacy. Just because listen to what he thinks and how he writes it. Iran is not likely to seek further negotiations once the JCPOA is abrogated but the administration may wish to consider rhetorically leaving that possibility open. So think about that, right? He's not just saying there won't be talks that work. He's saying pretend that you'll have talks. Fake it. And then so he's that publishing then, that in National Review. Right. <laughs> so he's basically saying let's have talks that are fake. Let's just have negotiations for the sake of being able to kind of check the box off later and say, hey, we talked. So if we, it wasn't our choice to go to war, we had these talks. 
even though going into them, he thinks they had no chance of working and really didn't seem to care if they work or don't or don't work. What's interesting about that is the knock-on effects for other negotiations, right? Iran is not the only country that the U.S. has to talk to. It's not even the only country the U.S. wants to talk to about nuclear weapons right now. North Korea is the obvious other example that Trump is about to meet with. And if he says openly, the new national security advisor, talks are kind of a waste of my time. Uh, We're just doing this so we can say that we tried. And Trump is about to sit down with Kim Jong-un or sometime in the future is going to. Well, what does that say about the prospects for success in those talks? So like a lot of you, I try to keep myself informed and educated about as many things as I can. And that's why I'm a fan of the Great Courses Plus app. And I want you to check it out too. There's unlimited access to thousands of fascinating courses from the world's best professors and experts. You can listen and learn about anything that interests you, no matter what you're doing. So you could brush up on philosophy in the car. You can explore ancient history while you're doing the dishes. And you could improve your understanding of the solar system while you're taking your dog for a walk. You could set your preferred playback speed, just like a podcast. And you could easily toggle back to video so you can get the visual context anytime you need it. I recommend checking out the class on learning Spanish. It's a great way to learn how to speak and understand Spanish or to brush up on what you may have learned in school but forgotten. And you can go at your own pace. So sign up today for The Great Courses Plus because you'll love it. And my listeners get a free trial with unlimited access to enjoy all of the lectures, but only if you go to my special URL. So to get that free trial, you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com worldly, and then download the free The Great Courses Plus app. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com worldly. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com worldly. So John Bolton has been just as measured on North Korea as he's been on Iran. Here is on Fox News from just a few weeks ago. There's an all-purpose joke here. Question, how do you know that the North Korean regime is lying? Answer, their lips are moving. Mm-hmm. They're not going to give up achieving this objective. That one begs to have a drum roll, please, because it's such a bad, bad joke. But there you go. I mean, that's John Bolton not talking about North Korea. Oh, it's like a Megan Trainor song. I'm not even sure who Megan Trainor is. Oh, well, man. now we know what the playout's going to be. <laughs> yeah. But now we've got John Bolton talking about North Korea. And there, he's had this view of the talks that are coming up as— really cynical. His view has basically been, let's have the talk, and if the talks fail, then we can go to war. And and again, it's sort of this belief heading into it a priori that the talks won't work. And then, again, it's kind of like, check the box, and then the military option, the path forward, is much more open and clear. Yeah, I, I want to, you know, step back a little bit and kind of talk people through this, because as, as Worldly's own Jen Williams pointed out when we were having a conversation about this a couple days ago, the fact that Trump and Kim Jong-un are going to be sitting down seems on the face of it like a big breakthrough for diplomacy, right? It seems like, oh, good, we finally have an alternative to this increasingly bellicose rhetoric on both sides, you know, these taunting, like, missile tests from North Korea, et cetera, et cetera. The cabinet reshuffle gives us a better way to understand what's really going on here because Rex Tillerson had been the figure in the Trump White House who was most in favor of talking to the North Korean regime. You know, Trump tweeted something in October about the time for talking is over, Rex, et cetera. He's pushed out the biggest advocate for talks. He's brought in, you know, Mike Pompeo, who is pretty hawkish, and John Bolton, who literally is telling the public these talks are just theater. It 
certainly indicates that Bolton's view, even if everyone else in the White House wouldn't express it that way, is certainly going to end up being the way the White House approaches these negotiations. That it's if Kim Jong-un comes in and says, oh, exalted leader, we will give up our entire nuclear program just for the chance to shake your hand. Donald Trump doesn't like shaking hands, but that would probably work. But anything short of like total humiliation, they're going to see as, well, we had the talks, the talks failed. Which like, the metaphor of checking the box you were using, Yohi, I think is really important to think about. Like, the idea that there is some kind of checklist of things you go through to build legitimacy for, you know, this military or force effort that you want to conduct is not usually, we usually think of the tactics of diplomacy as a menu of options. You do whatever's best to get to the same goal. Thinking of them as kind of bureaucratic hurdles that you have to jump over so that you can do the thing you really want to do without other people busting you over it is reminds me of nothing so much as the Iraq war, right? Yeah, I was about to say, I don't want to keep coming back to the Iraq war, but also we kind of have to keep coming back to the Iraq war, right? Because it's the last example of an ideologically driven conflict that got the U.S. into the the mess that a war with Iran or North Korea could be like. And in that case, as you said, Dara, the United States went to the U.N. knowing that the vote at the U.N. Security Council was almost certain to fail because the Bush administration wanted to say that it tried diplomacy and it tried a multilateral route and it couldn't disarm Saddam that way, making force the only possible option for dealing with what we now know to be a mythical weapons of mass destruction program. I'm really worried about the same kind of thing, dynamic, playing out. Foe moves towards diplomacy to build legitimacy for a push to push towards a really dangerous conflict. Yeah, Derry, a point you made before I think is really important, which is talks on the one level do seem like they are a great thing. Just inherently, it's better to be sitting across the table than saying, I'm going to bring fire and fury and my button's bigger than your button, na, 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 na. And that sitting in one place is, is good. But there's the argument that is made by scholars, that's made by people who have been involved in diplomacy that in some cases, failed talks are worse than no talks. And that if you have a meeting and you leave the meeting having not resolved something, then even if you're operating with good intentions heading into it, and I'm not sure a Bolton is or Trump would be, the odds of war are higher. Because then not just you saying to your country, but even your country might say to you, Mr. President, you tried. Like, North Korea is a threat. You just tried talks, talks and work. Like, what's next? And so the possibility of a summit that fails, and to me, like, that's the biggest risk, right? I don't think they're going to come to a deal, and I don't think they're going to scrap the whole thing. I think they'll meet. I think something will happen that will seem like progress, but I don't think it's going to be denuclearization. I don't think there's any chance of that happening. No. So then if Trump leaves that meeting with whatever he thinks he got and then realizes, wait a minute, I didn't get them giving up all of their nuclear arsenal and I didn't get them suddenly becoming allies of the United States, what does he default to? And if he defaults to John Bolton, he defaults to talks were a mistake. You tried them. Let's go. It's also important to emphasize how weird this is uh, in, in the way that diplomacy works, the summit. When you're structuring a really big deal diplomatic agreement, you start at lower levels, right? You have people fairly low down in the bureaucracies of the two or, or political appointees of the two countries in question meeting and hammering out the basics. And then you keep moving up the totem pole eventually to like, you know, cabinet level people or whatever the equivalent in North Korea is, where they get a lot of the of the grunt work done first before you have the top-level meeting between heads of state who are there to hammer out the very final agreement, sign things, and, and so on, right? None of that groundwork is being laid. We're going from nothing to a meeting between the leaders of the two countries. It's, it's zero to 60, and that is much more likely to fail than something that was painstakingly gamed out beforehand. 
especially because we know a great deal about how Donald Trump operates in various situations. And we know that in super scripted situations, he sticks to the script usually, but that the more leeway he is given, the more liable he is to kind of fixate on things. We also know that this is something that North Korea has been asking for for a while, this kind of, you know, presenting a meeting of equals between the two heads of state. And if you think of the North Korean nuclear program as a bid to get the respect of a world that thinks of it as a two-bit backwards dictatorship, the president of the United States agreeing to sit down head-to-head with the head of North Korea is the biggest legitimation that you could possibly hope for in this context. Dara, I think that's exactly right, because that was one of the things that came out of the meeting. If we think back to how this all happened, right? So South Korea sends envoys to North Korea. The South Koreans come to Washington to brief the White House. They say to the White House, North Korea is open to talks. And then Trump immediately says, great, let's do it. And from all the reporting that came out after, the South Koreans were kind of stunned. Like, they didn't think that would happen and they didn't think it would happen so enthusiastically. And part of it clearly is that Trump, A, didn't know North Korea has asked this before. He thought they were just asking him because Trump. And B, he didn't know that North Korea always says that they are theoretically open to giving up their nuclear weapons. They just aren't. So he heard that as, hey, President Trump, you are so great and they are so scared. They want to talk to you to give up their nukes instead of, hey, they want to meet with an American president so they'll look like a real world power, and there's no way in hell they'll give up their nukes. And the one person who is doing groundwork and who is doing the kind of preparatory stuff, Zach, you were talking about, is Kim Jong-un, right? Kim Jong-un went to Beijing this week on this really kind of badass armored train, the photos of which are kind of fun if you have a chance to see them. But he went to go meet with President Xi Jinping of China. There were state media uh, in China put out photos and videos of President Xi speaking and Kim Jong-un dutifully kind of taking notes the image being like, there he is, a responsible younger leader learning from a respected older one. But he has done the groundwork, right? He's met with the South Koreans, he being Kim Jong-un. He's met with the Chinese. So he's doing his little prep work, and we're not. There's not a set location or time for these meetings yet, but it's kind of tacitly assumed that China is going to be the most likely option for where Trump and Kim Jong-un are going to sit down and meet. And so... The idea that China is setting itself up to be the neutral place, the place that the regime that everyone respects well enough to trust that they'll be able to host these two leaders, China is serving the role that the U.S. would have been serving as kind of the great power that is able to resolve this somewhat petty struggle between two bellicose nations. And the U.S. is apparently not doesn't appear to have a big problem with that. For all of the kind of China hawkishness that the Trump administration has shown on other fronts, they don't appear to be thinking about the effect that this is going to have on China's stature in the region. And Dara, I think that's a, a good question there as well about sort of, you mentioned at the outset, the cabinet members who are still there, the ones who are not there anymore. Jim Mattis, you referenced at the beginning, the defense secretary is one of the last people still in who's seen as kind of the adult in the room. That was always, I think, a, a myth that was comforting when you had Mr. Charisma, you had John Kelly, H.R. McMaster, Jim Mattis. The myth was always they'd keep Trump in check, and obviously that, that's, that's false and that was fake. But you have Jim Mattis who has said publicly, repeatedly, that war with North Korea would be a catastrophe of almost unimaginable proportion. He's made that very clear that he's terrified of war and opposes it. Based on what, we've, what we think of John Bolton, what we know of Mike Pompeo, do we think Mattis is going to be the one still capable of saying no, no, no when it comes to war? Or does he get steamrolled the way that Tillerson was, the way that McMaster was, on, 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 on? I have no idea. I I really don't know. And that scares me because in the past you had this consensus for the most part among Trump's national security team that it would be a bad idea to start a catastrophic war. Now you don't. Now you have Bolton who's on the pro-war side and you have Pompeo who at least has pro-war inclinations. And so 
can those two counterbalance Mattis? Does Mattis, can Mattis counterbalance them? Are there people in the national security bureaucracy who mostly seem to support Mattis's position who could help here? One, one X factor, at least from my point of view, and, and Dara, you can explain this because you're a premier Kellyologist, is what John Kelly's role in all of this is. Like, he seems like a really important player being chief of staff, but has he marginalized himself to the point where nobody's listening to him anymore? I mean, that's definitely the sense that you get from the latest wave of White House criminology, that Trump feels that he's successfully slipped the bounds of John Kelly. Uh, Kelly saw his role early on as controlling the flow of information that gets to the president in much the way that Yohi, you were saying, the national security advisor typically does. Uh, Trump appears to have done an end run around that, certainly bringing Bolton in after Bolton was not allowed to give his plan to the president is an indication that, you know, the sources of information are now coming from inside the House. But what Kelly himself thinks about this is also kind of an open question, right? On one hand, he and Mattis are known to be very close. On the other hand, he's been much more enthusiastic about the culture warrior face of the Trump administration than Mattis has. And so I think if I'm Jim Mattis, the two things that I am prioritizing right now as we go into this potential summit are, one, coming up with a way to talk about the perils of a war with North Korea that don't sound scaredy-cat or dovish, but instead are about how great the American military is and how, you know, the deterrent effect should be sufficient or, you know, how demeaning it would be to get involved in blah, 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 blah. And, and I'm dead serious about this, although it's hilarious, I hire somebody to make sure that I get routine appearances on Fox News. And I think like that's a good place to close because it's a point both of you have written about, both of you have talked about, and something I wonder about, right? Jim Mattis is a very smart man. He's a very sober man. He's someone I've interviewed. He's someone that my wife works at the Pentagon has dealt with on a professional level. He's a very, very smart man. He's not a politician. He does not come from the world of Fox News. He is not someone who ever goes on TV. You never see Jim Mattis publicly. And so if you're Trump and you get your information from TV and you form your policy based on TV and you have... Theoretically, if Jim Mattis had allies in the Fox News world, he might be hearing the Jim Mattis side of things on Fox, and he might hear the John Bolton side of things on Fox. But there is no Jim Mattis side of things on Fox. So if you're Trump, all you're hearing is the John Bolton worldview coming at you from Fox and coming at you from John Bolton, and you are not hearing on Fox the kind of counterargument, the Jim Mattis argument. And that, I wonder, if maybe if we can close there with your thoughts, both of you on this, but if you're Trump and you only get one source of information and it's TV— and that TV is trying to shape you, and now the person who has those views works for you and is also trying to shape you, where do we end up? I think that this is the real question and is actually maybe the thing that gives me the most hope that we are not going to get into war with both Iran and North Korea at the same time is Trump doesn't appear to trust the people he hires as much once he's hired them. Like, there isn't evidence that once he gets the person off Fox News and into the White House that he actually keeps listening to them as much. He's just listening to the people who are still on Fox News. So the idea that Bolton is now going to be in the position of, like, giving briefings to Trump and writing memos for him and that he is theoretically going to have less time to appear on Trump's favorite television channel maybe indicates that Trump is going to be going to see Bolton's approach and Mattis's as co-equal rather than just getting the Bolton line all the time. I guess I, I want to hammer home the stakes here, right? We've been talking about this as a sort of struggle over influence, and, and that's right. But the consequences, we say war abstractly, but what does war look like? Yoke has a, has a great piece on this, on what war with North Korea particularly would look, look like. But 
North Korea has thousands of artillery pieces that are pointed at South Korean emplacements, including the capital city, Seoul, which is not far from the North Korean border. Within hours of a conflict, thousands of people could die. North Korea's strategic doctrine suggests they would use chemical weapons. And that's to say nothing of the conflict, the conventional fighting, the number of soldiers on both sides and Americans that would die, or of the use of nuclear weapons. If the United States were to attack North Korea, these aren't hypotheticals anymore. These aren't abstract possibilities. These are the real things that experts believe would be likely to happen in that world. So when we talk about war with North Korea and we talk about bureaucratic infighting being the one thing that stands between us and a conflict like this, that's what the stakes are. That's why this is so important. And that's why the United States foreign policy hinging on who has better access to Fox News is not really as funny as it sounds. The other thing is that we know that this is not a conversation that is going on within the White House, at least at any level that Trump can hear, because Donald Trump really does appear to see this as a matter of jockeying for his attention and favor. And the fact that the policy consequences are something that we have to bring up, you know, on our podcast rather than something that's actually being, you know, you can say what you like about the fight over the Iraq war, but there were actual policy arguments being made about the stakes of war in the run-up to that, whereas this time around, it really seems like the United States, for the sake of Donald Trump showing he likes John Bolton better than H.R. McMaster, is willing to get itself into this. We truly live in an age of miracle and wonder that we could look back at any part of the Iraq war and say, Boy, those were the days. (laughs) And with that profoundly depressing thought, Dara, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great having you on. We we will hopefully do this again. Uh, Jen will be on the weeds tomorrow talking about foreign policy and about more broadly the way the the Republican Party, the modern conservative movement, how it's been shaped, how it is shaping the world as as it goes. And so make sure that you listen for the next installment of the most ambitious crossover event in history. And to everyone who listens to the show and and who are fans of the show, who we like talking to, if you are celebrating Passover, happy Passover. If you're celebrating Easter, happy Easter. If you celebrate neither, have a great rest of your week. Come find us. If you have not already found us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, subscribe, rate, review. Thanks as always to our producer, Jillian Weinberger, sitting there solo. And to our social media manager, Julie Bogan, email us, vox at worldly.com. Find us on Twitter, hashtag worldlypodcast. We'll be with all of you again next week.